0: 7. The rush to the booking office. Punch, therefore, requests those who purpose taking places to apply early, as there will be no endy light jokes booked, and forwarded free of expense, have the articles not admitted at any price, wanted an epigrammatic porter, who can carry on a smart dialogue, and occasionally deliver light jokes, chant, to old father time, time old time wither away, linger a moment with us, I pray you soon now spreadest thy wings for flight, dip, boy, dip in the bowl thy lip, and be jolly, old time, with us tonight. dip, dip, and see, time old time thy side fling down, garland thy pate with a myrtle crown, and fill thy goblet with rosy wine, fill, fill up, the joy-giving cup, till it foams and flows o'er the brim like mine, fill, fill, and see, time old time sighing is vain, pleasure from thee not a moment can gain, fly, Old graybeard, but leave us your glass to fill as we please, and drink at our ease, and count by our brimmers the hours as they pass. The drama Romeo and Juliet, Italy, land of love and macaroni, of pathos and puppets, tomb of Romeo and Juliet, birthplace of punch and Judy, region of romance, country of the concentrated essences of all these carnivals. I punch the first and last, the alpha and omega of fun. Adore thee from the moment when I was cast upon my shores like venus out of the sea to the sad day when i am forced to descend from my own stage to mere criticism have i preserved every token that would endear my memory to thee my nose is still roman my mouth organ plays the gentilest of italian tunes my scenes represent the choicest of italian villas in choice italian duff my devil swear to a wit shalom Bella, longing to be still more reminded of thee dear italy i threw a large cloak over my hunch and a huge pair of spectacles over my nose, and ensconced myself in a box at the Haymarket Theatre, to witness the fourth appearance of my rival puppet, Charles Keane, in Romeo. He is an actor. What a deep voice, what an interesting lisp, what a charming whine, what a vigorous stamp. He hath, how hard he strikes his forehead when he is going into a rage, how flat he falls upon the ground when he is going to die. And then, when he has killed Tybalt, what an attitude he strikes. What an appalling grin he indulges his gaping admirers with all. This is real acting that one pays one's money to see, and not such an unblushing imposition as mystery practices upon us. Do we go to the play to see nature? Of course not, we only desire to see the actors playing at being natural, like Mr. Gallaud, Mr. Howe, Mr. Wordle, or Mr. Keane, and other actors. The system of being too natural will, in the end, be the ruin of the drama, It has already driven me from the stage, and will, I fear, serve the great performers I named above in the same manner. But the Haymarket Juliet overdoes it, she is more natural than nature. For she makes one or two improbabilities in the plot of the play seem like everyday matters of fact. Whether she falls madly in love at the first glance, agrees to be married the next afternoon, takes a sleeping draught, throws herself lifeless upon the bed, or wakes in the tomb to behold her poisoned lover. Still in all these situations she behaves like a sensible, high-minded girl, that takes such circumstances, and makes them appear to the audience quite as a matter of course. What let me ask, was the use of the author whose name, I believe, was Shakespeare purposely contriving these improbabilities? If the actors do not make the most of them, I do hope mystery will no longer impose upon the public by pretending to act Juliet. Let her try some of the characters in Belouard's plays which want all her help to make them resemble women of any nation, kindred, or country. Much as I admire Keen, I always prefer the acting of Wallach, there is more variety in the tones of his voice. For Keen tunes his pipes exactly as my long drummer sets his drum, to a one pitch, but as to action. Wallach more like my drummer beats him hollow, he points his toes, stands a kimbo, takes off his hat, and puts it on again, quite as naturally as if he belonged to the really legitimate drama and was worked by strings cleverly pulled to suit the action to every word. While it is an honest performer, he don't impose upon you. Like Webster, for instance, who as the apothecary, speaks with a hungry voice, walks with a tottering step, moves with a helpless gait, which plainly shows that he never studied the part he must have starved for it. Where will this confounded naturalness end? The play is, got up, as we managers call it, capitally. The dresses are superb and so are the properties, the scenery exhibited views of different parts of the city, and was, so far as I am a judge, well painted, I have only one objection to the balcony scene, plagiarism is mean and contemptible I despise it, I will not apply to the vice-chancellor for an injunction, because the imitation is so vilely caricatured, but the balcony itself is the very counterpart of Punch's theatre, Punch, my friend the captain, when a new farce begins with duck and Green Peas. It promises well, the sympathies of the audience are secured, especially as the curtain rises but a short time before every sober plague or is ready for his supper. Mr. Gabriel Snoxall is seated before the comatables above-mentioned he is just established in a new lodging. It is snug the furniture is neat being his own property, for he is a new and furnished lodger. A bachelor so situated must be a happy fellow. Mr. Snoxall's is happy a smile radiates his face he takes wine with himself. But has scarcely tapped the decanter for his first glass before he hears a tap at his door. The hospitable, coming, is answered by the appearance of Mr. Dunn Brown, a captain by courtesy, and Snoxall's neighbor by misfortune. Here business begins. The ancient natural historian has divided the genus Homo into the two grand divisions of victimizer and victim. Behold one of each class before you, the yeast and sweatwort, as it were, which prove the plot. Brown invites himself to dinner and does the invitation ample justice, for he finds the peas as green as the host, who he determines shall be done no less brown in the duck, he possesses two valuable qualifications in a diner out an excellent appetite, and a habit of eating fast, consequently the meal is soon over, Mr. Brown's own tiger clears away, by the ingenious method of eating up what is left, Mr. Snoxall is angry, for he is hungry, but, good easy man, allows himself to be mollified to a degree of softness that allows Mr. Brown to borrow, not only his tables and chairs, but his coat, hat, and watch, just, too, in the very nick of time, for the bailiffs are announced, what is the hunted creditor to do, exit by the window to be sure, a character invented by farce writers, and retained exclusively for their use for such folks are seldom met without. of a farce lives in the next street, he has a lovely daughter, and a nephew momentarily expected from India, and with those persons he has, of course, not the slyest acquaintance, and a niece, by marriage, of whose relationship he is also entirely unconscious, his parlors are made with French windows, they are open, and invite the bailiff hunted brown into the house, What's so natural as that he should find out the state of family affairs from a loquacious Abigail, and should personate the expected nephew, Mr. Tidmarsh the property old gentleman of the farce writers is in ecstasies. Mrs. T sees in the supposed Selburn a son-in-law for her daughter, whose vision is directed to the same prospects, happy, domestic circle, an equaled family felicity, too soon, alas, to be disturbed by a singular coincidence, Mr. Snoxall, the victim, is in love with Miss Sophia, the daughter, ruin and pens over Brown, but he is master of his art, He persuades Snoxall not to undeceive the family of Tidmarsh, and kindly undertakes to pop the question to Sophia on behalf of his friend, whose sheepishness quite equals his softness. Thus emboldened, Brown inquires after a few loose sovereigns, and Snoxall, having been already done out of his chairs, clothes, and watch, of course lends the victimizer his purse, which contains twenty. Mr. Brown's career advances prosperously he makes love in the dark to his supposed cousin Croce in the hearing of the supposed wife for the real Selborne has been married privately and his supposed friend, both supposing him false, mightily abuse him, all being still in the dark, at length the real Selburn enters, and all supposition ends, as does the farce, poetical justice being administered upon the captain by courtesy, by the bailiffs who arrest him, thus he, at last, becomes really Mr. Dunbrown, the farce was successful, for the actors were perfect, and the audience good-humored. We need hardly say who played the hero, and having named Wrench, as the nephew, who was much as usual, everybody will know how. Mr. David Reyes is well-adapted for knocks all, being a good figure for the part, especially in the Duck and Greenpeace season. The ladies, of whom there were four, performed as ladies generally do in farces on a first night. We recommend the readers of Punch to cultivate the acquaintance of, my friend the captain. They will find him at home every evening at the Haymarket. We suspect his paternity may be traced to a certain corner, from whose merit several equally successful broad pieces have been issued. Literary queries and replies by distinguished personages. Question by Sir Edward and L. I. D. O. N. D. U. L. W. R. Bart. What romance is that which ought to be most admired in the kitchen? Answer by Theodore Hook. Don Quixote. Because it was written by Cervantes' servants, rather low. Sir Ned, questioned by Lady Belius S. I S. I. N. G. D. Owen. When is a lady's neck not a neck? Answer by Lady Morgan. For shame now. When it is a little bare-bare, I suppose. A speech from the Hustings. The following is a correct report of a speech made by one of the candidates at a recent election in the north of England. Thomas Smith, Esquire then presented himself. And said, Crisis important dreadful industry enemy slaves independence freedom firmly gloriously contested support victory. Hurrah! Mr. Smith then sat down, but we regret that the uproar which prevailed, prevents us giving a fuller report of his very eloquent and impressive speech, Fashionable Movements, Count Dorsey declares that no gentleman having the slightest pretensions to fashionable consideration can be seen out of doors except on a Sunday, as on that day bailiffs and other low people keep at home epigram on a very large woman, all flesh is grass, so do the scriptures say, but grass, when cut and dried, is turned to hay, then, lo, if death to be his side should take, God bless us, what a hay cot thou wouldst make, an offer that lived somewhere has such a brilliant wit, that he contracted to alight the parish with it, and did it, our church clock, say the editors of a downcast paper, keeps time so well that we get a day out of every week by it, a man in Kentucky has a horse which is so slow, that his hind legs always get first to his journey's end. Punch. O. R. The London C. H. A. R. I. V. A. R. I. Volume 1. For the week ending July thirty first, 1841. Poetry on an Improved Principle. Let me earnestly implore you, good Mr. Punch, to give publicity to a new invention in the art of poetry, which I desire only to claim the merit of having discovered. I am perfectly willing to permit others to improve upon it and to bring it to that perfection of which I am delightedly aware. It is susceptible. It is sometimes lamented that the taste for poetry is on the decline that it is no longer relished that the public will never again purchase it as a luxury. But it must be some consolation to our modern poets to know as no doubt they do. For it is by this time notorious that their productions really do a vast deal of service that they are of a value for which they were never designed. They I mean many of them have found their way into the pharmacopoeia and are constantly prescribed by physicians as soporifics of rare potency, for instance, not poppy, nor mandragora, nor all the drowsy syrups of the world, shall ever usher thee to that sweet sleep, to which a man shall be conducted by a few doses of Robert Montgomery's devil's elixir, called, Satan, or by a portion, or rather a potion, of, Oxford, Apollo, we know, was the god of medicine as well as of poetry, behold, in the sour bard, his two divine functions equally mingled, but waving this, of which it was not my intention to speak, let me remark, that the reason why poetry will no longer go down with the public, as poetry, island that the whole framework is worn out, no new rhymes can be got at, when we come to a mountain, we are tolerably sure that a fountain, is not very far off, when we see, sadness, it leads at once to, madness, to, borrow, is sure to be followed by, sorrow, and although it is said, when poverty comes in at the door, love flies out of the window, a saying which seems to imply that poverty may sometimes enter at the chimney or elsewhere yet I assure you, in poetry, the poor always come in and always go out at the door, my new invention has closed the door, for the future, against the vulgar crew of versifiers, a man must be original, he must write common sense to hard exactions I know, but it cannot be helped, I transmit you a specimen, like all great discoveries, the chief merit of my invention is its simplicity. Last, however, the meanest capacity, which cannot, by the way, be supposed to be addicted to punch should boggle at it. It may be as well to explain that every letter of the final word of each alternate line must be pronounced as though Dilworth himself presided at the perusal, and that the last letter or letters placed in italics will be found to constitute the rhyme. Here, then, we had Orientio Adiari with a T toller. On going forth last night, a friend to see, I met a man by trade a s-n-o, SNO, reeling along the path he held his way. Oh, oh, Quoth I, he's TRUN, then us to him, were it not better, far, you were a little SOB, twere happier for your family, I guess, than playing off such rum besides, all drunkards, when policeman CN, partaken up at once by TH, me drunk, the cobbler cried, the devil trouble you, you want to kick up a blast our own oh now. May I never wish to a work for hobby. If drain I've had. The lying SNO. I've just returned from a teetotal party. 12 on us jammed in a spring CA. The man is lectured. Now. Was drunk. Why. Bless me. He's sent home in a CHI. He'd taken so much lush into his belly. I'm blessed if he could T old A pair on M him himself and his good lady. The gin had got into her HMI and Betty what weak mortals we are, they said they took but ginger bee, but as for me, I've stuck twas rather ropey all day to a weak imperial po and now we've had this little ghetto staring. just stand a q-u-r-t-e, a man in New York enjoys such very excellent spirits that he has only to drink water to intoxicate himself, two jobbing patriots, Mr. George Robbins, with unparalleled gratification, begs to state that he has it in command to announce, that in consequence of Lord John Russell's letter to the citizens of London having satisfactorily convinced Her Most Gracious Majesty that a change of ministry cannot be productive of a corresponding transformation of measures, and that the late political Lady struggle for the burden of office could only have emanated from a highly commendatory desire on the part of the disinterested and patriotic belligerents to serve themselves or their country, his royal mistress, ever solicitous to enchain the hearts of her devoted subjects by an impartial exercise of her prerogative, has determined to submit to the arbitration of his humble hammer, some of those desirable places, so long known as the stimuli to the ILACDA and ELICURGI of the 19th century, Lot 1, First Lord of the Treasury, that present in possession of Lord Melbourne, this will be found a most eligible investment, as it embraces a considerable extent of female patronage, comprising the appointments of those valuable legislative adjuncts, the ladies of the bedchamber, and the royal nurses, wet and dry, together with those household desiderated, coals and candles, and in a limited run of the royal kitchen, lot 2, secretary of state for the colonial department, at present occupied by Lord John Russell, this lot must possess considerable attraction for a gastronomical experimentalist as its present proprietor has for a long time been engaged in the discovery of how few pinches of oatmeal and spoonsful of gruel are sufficient for a human pauper, and will be happy to transfer his data to the next fortunate proprietor. Any gentleman desirous of embarking in the manufacture of sugar candy, matches, or cheap bread, would find this a desirable investment, more particularly should he wish to form either a parochial or matrimonial union, as there are plans for the one, and hints for the other. Which will be thrown into the bargain, being of no further use to the present noble incumbent, Lot 3, Secretary of State for the Home Department, at present the property of Lord Normandy, is admirably calculated for any one of a literary turn of mind, offering resources peculiarly adapted for a proper cultivation of the Jack Shepard and James Hepfield, Men of Elegant Crimes, School of Novel Writing the archives of Newgate and Horseman Lane being open at all times to the inspection of the favored purchaser yes, or, no, will determine the sale of this desirable lot in a few days. Lot 4. Secretary of State for foreign affairs, now in the occupancy of Lord Palmerston, possesses advantages rarely to be met with, from its connection with the Continental Powers, E. Cologne, Bears Greece, and cosmetics of unrivaled excellence, can be procured at all times, thus ensuring the favor of the divine sex, from the rich peasant cheek of Bronze, and large black eyes that flash on you a volley of rays, that say a thousand things at once, to the high dam is brow more melancholy, The only requisite besides money for this desirable lot island that the purchaser must write a bold round hand for protocols, understand French and Chinese, and be on the XbrD Turner, lot 5, several undersecretary ships, admirably adapted for younger sons and poor relatives, the whole of the proceeds by the advice of Her Majesty's Cabinet Council will be devoted to the erection of a union for decayed ministers. Cards to view may be had at the Treasury any day after the meeting of Parliament. Very like a whale. As the schoolmaster said when he examined the boys back after severely flogging him. The Diary of a Lord Mayor. All the world is familiar with the Diary of a Physician. The Diary of an annuity, The Diary of a Lady of Rank. And heaven knows how many other diaries besides. But who has ever heard of, or saw, the diary of the Lord Mayor, that day-book, or blotter, as it may be commercially termed, of a gigantic mind, who has ever perused the autobiography of the Lama of Guildhall, Cam of Cripplegate, Admiral of Fleet Ditch, Great Turtle Hunter and Hero of Michael Musquice, we will take upon ourselves to answer not one, it was reserved for Punch to give to his dear friends, the public the first and only extract which has ever been made from the genuine diary of the late Lord Mayor of London, or, as that august individual was wont, when in Paris, to designate himself on his visiting tickets, Mr. et Lord Mayor de and How the preciousness came into our possession matters little to the reader, suffice it to say, it is a secret which must ever remain confined to the bosoms of Punch and his cheesemonger. Diary. November 10, 8 o'clock. Dreamed a horrid dream thought that I was stretched in Guildhall with the two giants sitting on my chest, and drinking rum toddy out of firemen's buckets fancied the board of aldermen were transformed into skittle pins, and the police force into bottles of Harvey sauce. Tried to squeak, but couldn't. Then I imagined that I was changed into the devil, and that alderman harmer was St. Dunstan, tweaking my nose with a pair of red hot tongs. This time, I think, I did shout lustily, awoke with the fright and found my wife pulling my nose vigorously, and calling me, my lord, pulled off my nightcap, and began to have an idea I was somebody, but could not tell exactly who, suddenly my eye rested upon the civic down and chain, which lay upon a chair by my bedside, the truth flashed upon my mind I felt I was a real lord mayor, I remembered clearly that yesterday I had been sworn into office, I had a perfect recollection of the glass coach, and the sheriffs, and the men in armor, and the band playing, Jimalong Jose, as we passed the fleet prison, and the glories of the city barge at Blackfriars Bridge, and the enthusiastic delight with which the assembled multitude witnessed I could also call to mind the dinner the turtle, venison, and turbot and the popping of the corks from the throats of the champagne bottles. I was conscious, too, that I had made a speech, but, beyond this point, all the events of the night were lost in chaotic confusion. One thing, however. Was certain I was a bona fide Lord Mayor and being aware of the arduous duties I had to perform, I resolved to enter upon them at once. Accordingly I arose, and as some poet says, commenced sacrificing to the graces, by putting on my breeches, sent for a barber, and authorized him to remove the superfluous hair from my chin at the same time made him aware of the high honor I had conferred upon him by placing the head of the city under his razor thought I detected the fellow's tongue in his cheek, but couldn't be certain, ma'am. Never employ the rascal again. 9 o'clock. Dressed in full figs or very troublesome getting continually between my legs. Saturday down to breakfast her ladyship complimented me on my appearance said I looked the beau ideal of a mayor. took a side glance at myself in the mirror her ladyship was perfectly right. Trotter the shoemaker announced walked in with as much freedom as he used to do into my shop in Coleman Street smelled awfully of best calf and heavy soul shook me familiarly by the hand and actually called me, Bob. The indignation of the mayor was roused, and I hinted to him that I did not understand such liberties, upon which the fellow had the insolence to a laugh in my face couldn't stand his audacity, so quitted the room with strong marks of disgust. Ten o'clock. Heard that a vagabond was singing, Jim Crow, on Tower Hill proceeded with a large body of the civic authorities to arrest him, but after an arduous chase of half an hour we unfortunately lost him in Houndstitch suppressed two illegal apple stalls in the minorities, and took up a couple of young black legs, whom I detected playing at Chuck Farthing on Saffron Hill, issued a proclamation against mad dogs, cautioning all well-disposed persons to avoid their society. 12 o'clock, waked upon by the secretary of the New River Company with a sample of the water they supplied to the city found that it was much improved by compounding it with an equal portion of cognac gave a certificate accordingly. Lunched. And took a short nap in my cockpit. 1 o'clock. Police court disposed of several cases. Summarily everybody in court amazed at the extraordinary acuteness I displayed, and the rapidity with which I gave my decisions they did not know that I always privately tossed up heads, complainant wins, and tails, defendant this is the fairest way after all, no being humbled by hard swearing or innocent looks, no sifting of witnesses, no weighing of evidence, no deliberating, no hesitating the thing is done in an instant and If the guilty should escape, why the fault lies with fortune, and not with justice. Three o'clock. Visited the Thames tunnel found Brunel a devilish deep fellow. He explained to me the means by which he worked, and said he had got nearly over all his difficulties. I suppose he meant to say he had nearly got under them. At all events, the tunnel, when completed, will be a vast convenience to the metropolis, particularly to the lower classes. From the tunnel went to Billingsgate Market, confiscated a basket of suspicious shrimps and ordered them to be conveyed to the mansion house. Mem had them for breakfast tomorrow, returned to dress for dinner, having promised to take the chair at the Grand Annual Metropolitan Anti-Hydra without gin-drinking association. Here a hiatus occurs in the miss. but from cotemporary authorities we are enabled to state that his lordship was conveyed home at two o'clock on the following morning, by some jolly companions. Slowly and sadly they smoothed his bed, and they told his wife and daughter to give him Next day, a couple of red herrings and soda water, the loves of the plants, the gay Daffodilly, an amorous blade, stole out of his bed in the dark, and calling his brother, John Quill, forth he strayed to breathe his love vows to a violet maid who dwelt in a neighboring park, a spiteful old Nellant frowned on their love, but Daffy, who laughed at her power, a shepherd's purse slipped in the nurse's fox glove, then up Jacob's ladder he crept to his love, and stole to the young virgin's bower. The maiden's blush rose and she seemed all dismayed, arrayed in her white lady's smock. She called mignonette but the sly little jade, that instant was hearing a sweet serenade from the lips of a tall hollyhock, the pheasant's eye, always a mischievous white, for prying out something not good, about that he peeped through the keyhole that night, and clearly discerned, by a glow-a-worm's pale light, their two faces under a hood, old gouger peony, deaf as a door, who wished to know more of the facts. Invited Dame Mustard and Miss Hellebore, with Miss Periwinkle and many friends more. One evening, two tea and two tracks. The Buttercups ranged. Defamation ran high, while every tongue joined the debate. Miss Sensitive said, twixt a groan and a sigh, though she felt much concerned. Yet she thought her dear eye had grown rather bulbous of late. Thus the tale spread about through the busy parterre. Miss Columbine turned up her nose, and the prude Lady Lavender said, with a stare, that her friend. Mary Gold had been heard to declare, the creature had toyed with the rose, each sage looked severe, and each coxcomb looked gay, when Daffy to make their mind easy, Miss Violet married one morning in May, and, as sure as you live, before next Lady Day, she brought him a Michael Miss Daisy, nothing wonderful, the Duke of Normandy accounts for the non-explosion of his percussion shells by the fact of having incautiously used some of M. single quote kalosh single quote as pamphlets on the Corn laws, if this be the case, no person can be surprised at their not going off. Modern W. A. D. Tylers, the anxiety of the Whigs to repeal the timber duties is quite pardonable, for, with their wooden heads, they doubtlessly look upon it in the light of a poll tax. C. I. D. I. Elias A. D. I. if an European, says Sir Joshua Reynolds, in one of his discourses, when he has cut off his beard, and put false hair on his head, or bound up his own hair in formal, hard knots, as unlike nature as he can make it, and after having rendered them immovable by the help of the fat of dogs, has covered the whole with flour, laid on by a machine with the utmost regularity if, when thus attired, he issues forth and meets a Cherokee Indian who has bestowed as much time at his toilet, and laid with equal care and attention his yellow and red ochre on such parts of his forehead and cheeks as he judges most becoming. Whichever of these two despises the other for this attention to the fashion of his country, whichever first feels himself provoked to a laugh, is the barbarian. Granting this, the popular advocates of civilization certainly are not the most civilised of individuals. They appear to consider yellow ochre and peacock's feathers the climax of barbarism arabis and collider the acne of refinement a ring through the nose calls forth their deepest pity a diamond drop to the ear commands their highest respect, to them, nothing can show a more degraded state of nature than a New Zealand chief, with his distinctive coat of arms emblazoned on the skin of his face, nor anything of greater social elevation than an English peer, with the glittering label of his nobility tacked to his breast, to a rational mind, the one is not a whit more barbarous than the other, babying, as Sir Joshua observes, the real barbarians who, Like these.